0: Recovery Elevator, episode 367.
1: As simple as it is, you know, I I wanted to get sober because I wanted a better life. And, um, you know, I stay sober today because I have one.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us today. On this episode, we've got Aaron. He's from San Antonio and took his last drink on May twenty second, two 2019. Great job, Aaron. Now, before we get any further, let's hear from our newest sponsor, Brands, and I'm super excited to be working with them.
2: Founded in Northern California... The team at Kala Ukulele has been designing and building ukuleles for over 15 years. Today, Kala is the most popular ukulele brand in the world. Kala's mission is to create affordable and high-quality ukuleles at every price point. The ukulele is super fun and fulfilling. Anyone can learn. And if you don't believe me, you can always ask Paul. This instrument has a remarkable ability to keep you feeling calm, centered, and rejuvenated as you learn, grow, and pursue your life in sobriety. If you're interested in learning more about Kala, their instruments, and even get free lessons and tips on how to play the ukulele, then head over to Kala's website. You can also use our link kalabrand.com forward slash elevator for 15% off on your first purchase at Kala. That's klabrand.com forward slash elevator.
0: And if you're wondering what a Kala brand ukulele sounds like, here you go. This past January on our sober travel trip to Costa Rica, We took a tour at a coffee plantation and they shared an interesting way of keeping beetles off the plants. Since everything is organic and they don't use harmful pesticides, how do they keep an invasive beetle species away from the coffee seed? Well, this is how. They place alcohol in a cup with a basin of water below it. The beetle consumes the alcohol, it gets drunk, falls into the water, and then drowns. I kid you not. This is an actual effective way of keeping the plants beetle-free every coffee plant on the plantation contains this apparatus. Unfortunately, this happens with our species also. If you have a blood alcohol content of 0.10 and the legal limit is 0.08, then it turns out you have a 10 times higher chance of drowning if you are near a body of water. So since we are nature, alcohol has the same effect on humans. In fact, more than half of all human drownings involve alcohol. What can we derive from this? Well, alcohol is shit unless you want to protect a coffee seed from beetles. Check this out. This is pretty cool. So last May, Denver, Colorado had its first alcohol-free bar open its doors. Today, the AF bar called Awake is now franchising. How cool is that? Not only is Awake flourishing, it's entertaining the idea of franchising across the country. Now, I'm no Napoleon Hill, but the idea of expansion presents itself only when a project or business is thriving. Alcohol-free bars, or places for social gatherings that don't sell alcohol, are gaining in popularity, without a doubt. At first, they started in larger markets, such as London, New York, and Singapore, but as the movement to find altruistic connection without alcohol intensifies, the market is responding to this demand, and AF bars are opening up in smaller markets as well. I love it. In fact, a goal of mine is to open an in-person Café in the future, so stay tuned. Okay, let's get started. Today I want to cover why geographical cures don't work. Well, let me rephrase that actually. I want to cover why geographical cures don't work in the long run. First off, let's cover what a geographical cure is. A geographical cure is trying to fix a drinking problem by relocating geographically. This doesn't always have to be moving or calling a new place home, but this is probably the most common type of geographical cure. We also do this with jobs and relationships, not just a drinking problem, and that strategy with jobs or relationships rarely works either, and here is why. So two episodes ago, in episode 365, I talk about the quote, the opposite of addiction is connection. It's a big hitter, heavy hitter quote. I say it's nearly impossible to connect with others in the outside world if we are disconnected within, and this is the same reason why geographical cures don't work. Don't get me wrong, getting out of a toxic environment is a solid choice, but if you're not doing the inner work, it's only a matter of time before the drinking ramps up again. I've interviewed countless people on the Recovery Elevator podcast who have said something to the tune of, I moved across the country only to find myself drinking the same, if not more, than before. From 2005 to 2008, I owned a bar in Granada, Spain. That last year in 2008, I was blacking out nearly every single night and my body was starting to shut down. In February of 2009, I made a smart move. I ate my pride, I took off my ego hat, and I walked away, as in I lost everything. But I'm fairly confident that decision to do so saved my life. At the end, I was determined to make it work, but I didn't have the awareness at the time to know that I was grappling with an addiction to the most dangerous drug on the planet, alcohol. So I left, and again, I think that was a wise decision. And when I left, I was convinced my drinking problem was going to stay on that side of the Atlantic Ocean, which it did. However, I wasn't doing any recovery work or inner work, and after a couple months of returning, I was blacking out again. Not every night of the week, since I was no longer an alcoholic running a bar, but the same drinking patterns emerged. In 2009, I did another geographical cure, At my late 20s, I recognized something was off. Something was out of balance. But what was it? I had no idea. I couldn't figure it out. Even though I found it nearly impossible to stop drinking once I had started, and once I had started drinking, I almost always blacked out. There was no way it could have been alcohol, right? Of course not. So at that time, I began working with a therapist. And after three to four sessions, I remember her interrupting me and asking the question, Paul, do you think you have a problem with alcohol? Or maybe you're an alcoholic. I was perhaps open to exploring the idea until she said the word alcoholic. I remember this very clearly. So there was no way I was an alcoholic because swirling in my mind were several reasons and justifications of why I wasn't. So after a short pause, I said, No, I don't think I have a problem with alcohol. Now, the truth is, I wasn't lying. Again, I didn't have the awareness at the time to recognize that, yes, I did have a major problem with alcohol. That's one of the most dangerous things about alcohol. We are almost blind to the destruction that it is causing in our lives. On top of that, we convince ourselves that alcohol is adding value to our life when it's really destroying us one hangover at a time. So in 2009, I made my second geographical cure from Colorado to Seattle, Washington. I'll let you take a guess of what the outcome was. Yep, within a couple of weeks this time, and not months, I found myself replacing my new roommate's bottles of whiskey a couple times a week. Are geographical cures a total waste? No, not at all. As I mentioned earlier, if you're in an environment where it's nearly impossible to stay away from alcohol, or your health and well-being is severely compromised, then yes, removing yourself from that environment is a very smart move. Even if similar drinking patterns shortly return, We still experience a brief reprieve from alcohol, and we then gain insight on what's working and what isn't. It was after my third geographical cure, this one from Seattle to Montana, where I landed at a stark conclusion. Here it is I was the problem. Wherever I went, my problems would follow. Again, the reason for this is because I wasn't doing any work, I wasn't doing any recovery work. Therefore, I changed my outer environment, but since my inner environment hadn't changed, It was only a matter of time before my external environment matched my inner environment. So many of us reach this conclusion, and it's not a bad thing, and that conclusion is that we are the problem. We usually get there by a couple failed geographical cures, but labeling the geographical cure as a failure isn't accurate because the failure then helps shine the light on where we need to go in the future which usually is, A, we are the problem, and B, we need to do something different, and that usually leads to inner or recovery work. I want to cover the flip side of this topic. Can we thrive in unhealthy environments if we are doing the inner work? So in the short term, I believe this is yes, and in the long term, no. If we are doing recovery work or inner work, we usually end up leaving these toxic environments, and here's a big reason why. Much of this inner work is connecting within, loving yourself, learning boundaries, standing up for yourself, and learning to make decisions off what's best for your sobriety. So after doing this type of work, it's only a matter of time before we reach the conclusion that staying in an unhealthy environment is a betrayal to your inner child. You'll realize it's an act of disrespect to yourself to remain in an environment that isn't conducive to your wholeness. To summarize this topic in a few sentences, it would be this. Back to the universal law of your inner and outer world is a mirror. If you're not doing the inner work, then a geographical cure won't work in the long run. Listeners, I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. I had a fun time writing it. Okay, and before we hear from Odette and Aaron, let's hear from a better way to get help. Let's hear from BetterHelp.
2: This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the best online therapy option that currently exists on the market. Mental health matters, and as we continue to live through these stressful times, it has become more and more evident that we need to have someone that can help us process our emotions and navigate the challenges of sobriety. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp provides a broad range of expertise, which may not be locally available in many areas. The platform is super easy to navigate as you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with your counselor. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. You all know that I'm a big proponent of therapy, so I highly recommend you check it out. Simply visit betterhelp.com forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join everyone that is taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Recovery Elevator listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com, forward slash elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, forward slash elevator. Thank you, Paul, for an amazing introduction, and Recovery Elevator, Please help me welcome Aaron to the show today. Aaron, how are you?
1: I'm well, Odette. I'm really excited to be on here.
2: I'm really happy that you are finally here. Uh, We have been talking offline that this has been a long time coming, so I'm just feeling very, very grateful that you're here, and let's get right to it. When was the last time you had a drink, Aaron?
1: Uh, So my sobriety date is May 22nd of 2019. And how do you feel? Uh, Awesome. Uh, Never felt any better. Yeah, I feel great.
2: Mm -hmm. And can you give listeners a little background about yourself first? Can you let us know how old you are, where you're calling in from? What do you do for a living? What do you like to do for fun? Just a little background on yourself.
1: Of course. Yeah. So uh, I am 27 years old. March 31st of 94 is my birthday. So uh, in March, I'll be 28. I am Zooming in from San Antonio, Texas uh, is where I live. I've been in Texas for about five years now. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, and I work in finance and just got a promotion into the wealth management department for a corporate bank I work for in September of last year. what I do for a living. And what do I like to do for fun? I'm a big, big family guy, fun uncle. I love hanging around with my nieces and nephews. I love going on hikes with my family. We do food truck Fridays with my cousin. Um, So that's something that I really look forward to every Friday. (laughs) And yeah, I just like to get outside and and, uh, be around other people who Are kind of like me.
2: I love that, and it is Friday today. So, are you going to eat some dinner at a food truck later?
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. We like to try all different types of uh, foods. Um, So, we go to different type of food trucks all throughout San Antonio. We even drove up to Austin, which is like about hour and a half, two hours from San Antonio. Go to the food trucks up there. Yeah, definitely something that's on our agenda tonight.
2: Oh, that sounds really fun, Aaron. Thanks for sharing and. You know, it sounds like, you know, you've got a stable job. Family is one of your values. You like being outside and having fun. So what role did alcohol have in your life? And just tell us a little bit about your history with the substance. You know, when did you start drinking? When did it start becoming an issue? And what got you to start quitting and here with us?
1: Yeah, so alcohol really was like a uh, best friend of mine. I started drinking pretty early on. So just kind of some quick background of, of my family. Um, so I was raised by like this amazing, incredible uh, single mother who raised four children. I'm the youngest out of all my siblings. Um, got two older brothers and one older sister. And uh, just had a really great, amazing uh, childhood. Um, my mom wearing both caps, mom and dad hat. Yeah, you know, my world got rocked a little bit at an early age. She developed cancer right when I was about 10, 11 years old. Um, and she passed away from breast cancer when I was 12. So my world kind of got turned upside down. And, you know, my mom was just, a, just an incredible uh, person that um, literally went to any lengths to make her, her children happy. You know, we went to private Catholic school, She like literally did like the impossible. Like there's so many times where I just think about like all her sacrifices and struggles, she, you know, um, and she just never ever portrayed that she was ever struggling, even though of course she was single and just like, she was also a business owner. So anyways, got into high school dealing with, um, you know, I was 12 years old and graduated eighth grade and uh, processing this quick life event uh, life really happened very fast um, after my mom passed uh, we were made with the decision my other brother and I to um, start living with my older brother or my older sister we almost had to like choose between the two which was a tough decision and so like coming into high school uh, I really didn't know anyone went to um, a private Catholic high school in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah, I just really wanted to feel accepted. I always felt very, very disconnected. Um, like after mom passed, I was I never felt connected to like family. Um, I've never felt connected to friends. Um, I never felt connected to places. And I think most importantly, I never felt ever really connected to myself. Uh, you know. My mother was really pretty much my voice. My uncles and people that saw me growing up described it as, like, I was always just clinging to my mom's leg. So, yeah, when I found alcohol, it was about maybe sophomore or junior year of high school. Oddly enough, I became, like, this really, really accepted, popular guy without even trying, really. Uh, I just you know, wanted people to accept me. So I saw that alcohol was that answer from the very time, first time I drank, I like to think that like my, my disease progressed, but like, like reflecting back on that very first time I drank, um, around these, this group of people, uh, like I ended up like blacking out basically. It was, you know, I, I, had that first drink and I immediately wanted the other one. And again, it was this way of like finally feeling a part of somehow. So that was um, how alcohol got involved in my life. And yeah, it was just like this, uh, almost like a uh, like a like a third arm or something.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Aaron, thank you so much for sharing. And I'm so sorry for your loss. You know, I'm a mom and. 12 is so young, uh, you know, and that had to be so, so, so painful and probably still is, you know, that will always be a part of, of you and your story. And can I just ask, like, I know you said those years afterwards were really fast, but when it happened, do you recall because alcohol wasn't introduced till later. So do you recall how you were even attempting to process? Did you cry a lot? Did you like disassociate? Do you remember how you dealt in those initial stages with that like tremendous loss?
1: You know, that's such a good question, Odette. Like I really had no time to process um, mm-hmm. my mother's passing. Um, I just felt like we had to figure out so much um, because she was like the only one who took care of all of us. Um, And there was these big decisions for my older siblings. And then like my brother, who's like a year older than me, um, we just immediately had to make this decision whether to like live with my older brother, live with my sister, no time to really even process, you know, the, the death of my mom, to be honest. And so, yeah, I, I, it's almost like kind of a blurry mm-hmm. uh, time period for me, to be honest.
2: Yeah, and I bet that when you know your brain understood what was happening when you introduced alcohol, it was almost like a pressure release, like a valve that got open, like woof. Like it's crazy how we can store that when we don't process it in real time, and yeah, it's just. Sounds so painful. So, once again, thank you for sharing. You know, when logistics, what you were saying about your siblings, meet emotional overwhelm, it's so crazy how the logistics always take priority, right? Because how life is happening outside of us. You have to deal with what is happening. But then, what about everything that's happening inside of us? You know, that stuff that isn't tangible, it's it's so wild how we can just kind of hit pause and keep moving around in the world. So I'm curious, Aaron, like what happened in high school, you know, as you were reaching the end of high school and you were already drinking, how did it start progressing?
1: Yeah. So it started progressing senior year and yeah, it's, it's, you were mentioning about how uh, when alcohol was introduced it, you know, that's what the type of relief I got, you know, you were describing that. And and, um, I was, it was just that drink. It's like, ah, you know, it's like I drank because I either wanted to feel or um, I wanted to not feel, you know, and that was the role that alcohol uh, played for me. And as selfish as this sounds, you know, for me, alcoholism like is defined in one sentence is how I feel is more important than anyone or anything in the world. So coming up into this like senior year, another big life event, uh, I made this crazy decision to go live in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Um, My sister still lives out there. She got pregnant with my niece and uh, she was My mom was really big about family, and uh, she embedded in us, like, uh, you know, if any of you guys are ever struggling, like, you guys better, like, be there for each other. Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners at the dinner table, she was so big about keeping the family together, like, under any and all conditions. Her family was so, like, the opposite of that. My mother's uh, sister and brothers were, like, the type of family, like just like never talked to each other. It was almost like they weren't even brothers and sisters. So she didn't want that for us. And uh, as a as a kid, going to those holiday dinners, and you know, her voice just re replaying in the back of my mind. I, I was just trying to wear like these masks where I was like trying to satisfy everyone around me, my friends in high school, my my siblings. And so my sister got pregnant with my niece. And so a long story short, I just after senior year, I was like, you know, I'm not growing. I'm not like advancing in my life out here in California um, as much as I had like so many quote unquote friends um, that I thought were really like close friends. I made this big life decision to live out in um, Iowa where my sister moved. And that's where really the Midwest, like man, my um, drinking progressed so much out there and talk about a big change of scenery from like beautiful, sunny, um, like great weather all the time in California to like, you know, harsh winters in the Midwest.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, you did say that in high school you were popular and you had friends. And I love that you said that it was just surprising because you weren't even trying. So in terms of, you know, that big transition to the Midwest, let alone like the weather and all those other things, were you able to find community and friends right away or other than just the move? What else do you attribute the progression to? Were you just like drinking alone? Were you going out to parties a lot? What happened afterwards?
1: So my um, older brother, who's a year older than me, he moved out there with me, I wasn't going to go alone. So I had his company, you know, pot and marijuana is also in my story. So like, me and my brother, we moved out there, I was thinking I was just going to get like a job and like kind of start progressing in my career. Things turned out to be completely different than what I expected moving out there. And Expectations are just like resentments under construction, you know. Something that I hear often in like the recovery world, and so I had like all these expectations of what like my life was gonna be when I moved out to the Midwest because, you know, my sister was promising us like a new start, and you know this was just kind of like the beginning of my uh, drinking and into the progression of it, and so my sister would go full-time and I was taking care of my niece up and I raised basically uh, my niece until she was about three or four years old um, my sister got me a job out there uh, working for a call center in customer service and you know I, I, I was really um, didn't have much of a community but I had coworkers and people that I met at work a lot of them were a lot older than me and The Midwest, uh, you know, with harsh winters, there's not really a whole lot to do out there. So a lot of them drank, drank pretty heavily. Um, And so I felt, again, just kind of like a part of the, this drinking culture that I just kind of like morphed into. And then I just started hanging around like the wrong crowd, I guess, you know, like people who are a lot older than me who are just like, you know, drinking their lives away. So yeah, that's, Kind of where I got involved. I got a roommate without going off topic too much. My sister ended up like parting ways from my brother and I. Um, It was obvious as to why she did that. It was because, you know, she didn't want, you know, her brothers to be like smoking pot and, and drinking around, you know, her daughter. And you know, I, I, I had resented her for some time because of that, because uh, she like kicked us out of the house and like we like were like in the Midwest, like not knowing anyone. It's like, what do we do now? <laughs> and um, yeah, so I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah,
2: totally. It, it, I mean, usually I also like asking, you know, where people around you started to notice that you were, you know, attaching to alcohol and, in your case, weed as well, other substances. So I guess it was evident enough to your sister to where she had to make the call to put some distance between you
1: guys. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I was working, you know, full time and I got a roommate and he was a coworker of mine My brother ended up um, leaving um, the Midwest. He flew back to California. He like absolutely hated uh, living in Iowa, not knowing anyone, and I don't blame him. But uh, for some reason, I I stuck around in the Midwest. I actually lived out there for about five, six years before moving to Texas. Yeah, so I had a couple of different roommates. Again, they drank just like me.
2: Were you having conversations in your head where you were like man like my sister doesn't want to be near us anymore and i'm drinking a lot what was the inner dialogue with you were you in denial or were you aware that you know something's not right with this behavior
1: i was definitely in denial i think there's a denial component to it for sure but i also just felt so like isolated you know after that like Being kicked out of the house, and then like, in the middle of like the Midwest in like cold Iowa, where um, I had no family. Like, you know, my brothers were in California, and um, you know, my dad lived out in Utah. So I just felt so alone. Like, like, and like, I had these walls built up, and I I was still like functioning somehow because I was going to work, and like, um, you know like still not having like any like bottoms to, to say, but um yeah, the inner dialogue was just like just so angry that, you know, um, you know, my mom was gone. Like I started processing that, that, that started coming to um, to surface and, you know, my sister kicking me out it was just so, so filled with like resentment and um, yeah.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, how long did this go on before you decided to attempt to quit? Or how did the denial turn into a different type of action? Like, what happened? Did you have a bottom moment? Did something, you know, shake you? What happened?
1: Yeah, just the alcohol stopped working. (laughs) Like, uh, it was this it was this thing that like, was a solution, like to my problem. Like, said it can just like numb me out or I could finally feel something and um, at some point it just stopped working you know it worked for uh, several years I got into this relationship um, while I lived in the Midwest and um, amazing woman that um, was you know we were together for about two three years and um, at this point, it was the end of my journey in Iowa and I was gonna come live here in Texas where I live now. She for sure knew I had a drinking problem and she would almost um, shame me, but you know, she was we were young. I mean, we were so young. We started dating when I was about maybe like 20, 21. And uh, we lived with each other. And again, an incredible woman. We are really close to this day even though we are not like in a relationship but yeah you know this relationship really really went south kind of toxic towards the end because you know I've just like she wouldn't understand um the hurt and the pain that I, I was going through and instead of like saying hey maybe you should get help it was almost felt like I was being shamed and um You know, like (laughs) being caught in the in the morning, like cracking open a beer um, and like, what is wrong with you? You know. Um, And so, yeah, uh, that relationship ended. And um, again, here goes Aaron, like making a huge change of scenery and driving 18 hours from the Midwest uh, to to Texas. I thought that that's was going to be kind of like the beginning of an end. And um, I moved out here in 2016. My sobriety date's not until 2019. And so, um, yeah, I came out here processing the the grief of a a relationship that was really, really good until alcohol became the priority. So, yeah, uh, I had this headspace and just this like hole in my heart, I guess, that I do want to share that like I don't have any physical bottoms like uh, to this day I don't have any DUIs I haven't ever been to rehab like I, I I'm still working a really good stable job making good money so nothing in the sense as far as like a physical hard bottom but um yeah my bottom was just this uh unbearable feeling like I'm not sure if you know too much about the 12 steps, but you know the very, very first step. Um, this was a game game changer for me. Is you know we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. And I had such a hard time grasping that concept because for me, on an outside surface, my life wasn't unmanageable. Like you know, having the good career, having no it was pretty manageable for the most part, you know, someone came up to me and said, Hey, Aaron, like, how about we change that word to unbearable for you? So, you know, I said, I made, I admitted I was powerless over alcohol and, and that my life, that our lives had become unbearable. That made so much more sense to me. And, uh, that was the kind of the, the beginning to my journey here going to, um, like 12 step meetings I just found a, a 7 a.m. meeting. <laughs> first things first is my home group out here in San Antonio. I don't know why I just felt so pulled to go to this um, kind of group. And, and yeah, um, I just started having some discipline and, and waking up every morning and, and having this routine that was such a big, again, game changer for me, getting up that early and having a routine.
2: You know, I really appreciate you sharing that you had an emotional bottom. I think that that is the case for many people who listen to the show and many people who don't listen to the show or don't get any other help from anybody, not just us, because they don't think that that's enough. You know, they feel like there needs to be something that needs to happen tangibly in their life, you know, when they need to reach a stereotypical rock bottom, if not, it's probably not a problem. And we like live in these stories where we second guess ourselves or justify our behavior. But since you were starting to tell your story, you know, there, you keep coming back to this, you know, I was becoming resentful and angry. And all of that starts adding up so much. It's like we are emotionally sick. And I am certainly grateful that, you know, as young as you were, that was like your own inner red flag of like, this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't the way to be. And I feel like I keep thinking about your mom and a big part of me wants to credit her for just instilling Values that probably made it easier for you to feel like this is off. This isn't right. This isn't good for me, you know? And I just, I admire how brave you were because it's really hard to get there on our own.
1: And, you know, since I've started my sobriety journey, I just, I really like feel like so connected to her in a way that I've never felt so connected. It's still a hard thing to talk about. She was just like, (laughs) <laughs> like literally like a higher power to me in so many different ways. And yeah, yeah, we can live in that denial of just like, and 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 the harder thing that and when I came around, especially me being young, you know, I started sobering up when I was 24. It was like my first attempt um, when I started going to these meetings, you know, a lot of the other people in the rooms were like, hey, you haven't reached your bottom or like um, something worse is gonna have to happen and and you know for me my message when i share my story is that that, that's complete nonsense it's it's bullshit (laughs) you know you don't have to have like this hard physical bottom to want to get sober as simple as it is you know i i wanted to get sober because I wanted a better life and, um, you know, I stay sober today because I have one.
2: And tell me a little bit more, Aaron, of that initial chapter in your journey. You know, we're now in 2022. So you stuck to this morning meeting. uh, You got the momentum going. What other things were getting you through those first few weeks, first few months, which are typically the hardest?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also do want to share this. Field research is a part of my story. I, I don't like the word relapse. I, I love how you guys say field research. I didn't get it the very first meeting. I kind of had this like one foot in, one foot out. Mostly my mind telling me that like, I still have this uh, misery left for another 10 years. And it was like, I was trying to battle with that inner voice. Yeah, as far as my morning routine go, I'd go to the 7 a.m. meeting and then uh, I would, after the meeting ended, I would go work out at LA Fitness here. Um, I would throw on my AirPods and I would, uh, I found Recovery Elevator um, really short, I'd say like about maybe just a couple couple months in um, of my sobriety. Yeah, I just really related to a lot of the people that would come on here. And one of the big reasons why, I wanted to come on here was just to give back. Nothing fills that hole that I was talking about earlier on the way that this warm feeling I get when um, I can give back to the recovery community, share the message of recovery that you know this is possible, and and, and even for young people, you know. So yeah, I would go to the workout. I would listen. I listen on in. I joined Cafe RE sometime in uh, early 2020 when the pandemic hit. I just felt like I definitely needed some sort of community and um, the connection. So I joined Cafe RE, I'd say like February, March of 2020. And yeah, so that's that was kind of my morning routine. And then like I clock in at work. My shift didn't start till about 11 a.m. So I had like this wisdom-filled morning from my 7 a.m. meeting to the workout to the RE interviews. And discipline was such a big thing I needed. Um, I feel like people like myself who struggle with drinking um, were so undisciplined. You know, discipline is that choosing what matters most over what I want now. And there was moments, you know, in early sobriety where I was like, oh, it'd be easy to check out or... Uh, I want to change how I feel now, but the discipline and, and the recovery community has taught me that um, I can choose what matters most. And What matters most is my health, my career, my family, breaking the cycle. You know, alcoholism has ran in my family for generations. I think we've talked about um, our parents in recovery. And mm. yeah, my dad's coming up on 16 years um, in March. And so um, yeah, I just thought I'd share that.
2: Yeah, so empowering. You know, I love, 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 love and say it all the time. When recovery starts running in our families, it 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 stops being this thing where it's like, well, it runs in the family, it's the cards that we were dealt, and it just becomes so empowering. And it's just something to be really proud of in terms of like ancestry and legacy. So I've always been super happy to know that you are in good company, you know, with your dad and just doing the thing, changing the trajectory.
1: Yeah. And like he often says, like when we change, the people around us change. And, um, you know, it's like so true, like the dynamic of my family with my siblings and my relationships with my nieces and nephews, like everything is just so pure and so genuine. Something so... Beyond my imagination, like, um, you know, I just never would have thought, like, I would have this such a cool dynamic in my family where because I took the decision to make a change, you know, the other people in my life, um, you know, support me and and, um, maybe question if they want to start seeking healthier ways to um, cope with their life. So, yeah.
2: Um, Tell me, Aaron, what hurdles or obstacles have you bumped into now that you aren't drinking? You know, when has it felt hard or just any specific challenges you've had?
1: Um, Yeah. So after the boulder of like alcohol being removed from my path, um, some other things have came to light. You know, like I definitely think I struggle with like food. I, 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 I can sometimes... You know, just really want to eat some fast food or junk food, and also with relationships. You know, um, I've been single for some time now, but I definitely feel like there's some codependency, some wounds, like you know, with my mother and stuff like that, because she was like the only uh, woman figure in my life that have kind of came to surface as I've got sober. So, I I got into a relationship. Within like my second year sobriety, at the very beginning of it, I was like, man, I'm this awesome, cool, mysterious, sober guy. So, like, you know, who isn't going to want to be with me? <laughs> but as the relationship kind of progressed and stuff, you know, there was still some trust issues and things that, you know, I definitely have became aware of. And so the relationship just kind of ended for the best of both of us. And so I've been just so at peace with just, like, getting to know Aaron and, like, what is it that I really want? Just really prepare myself for, for that. I'm the only sibling that doesn't have any kids, doesn't have a significant other. Yeah, some of those issues have came up. The, the, heart, the breakup was pretty heartbreaking because, again, I was, like, putting in all this effort and love and energy. And I was thinking that that's what, you know, this person... And um, they may have needed it at the time, but um, kind of realized that we weren't uh, all yeah. this. Point. Yeah.
2: And it's, yeah, back to what you also shared earlier, you know, the expectations piece that really rolls out also with people. And we really have to learn how to communicate better and be emotionally intelligent. Like there are so many byproducts of sobriety that, you know, the, the not drinking gets easier, but sometimes the living piece of it gets tricky. At least for me, it feels like these layers are just, you know, showing up that I my good friend Tricia is always like, I'm glad that this is coming up now because I don't know if I'd been able to deal with it like a year ago or when I was drinking. It's almost like you start gaining this emotional confidence, I guess, to to understand that your feelings you know, that you can deal with them, even if it sucks and if it hurts, but that they, they're not going to break you, that you don't have to run from them. So it's just really cool watching you grow and hear how you are just learning to be who you
1: are. Yeah, you're just spot on with that. Like I, you're talking about the biggest obstacle now um, being a couple of years um, away from my last substance um, or any mind altering substance. I have to sit with my feelings. I like have to. Um, And sometimes the best way that I can do that is putting pen to paper. Um, I'm not always the best with that. But if I can journal about it, I I do keep a journal. In early sobriety, it was like every day I was writing something in there. But yeah, sitting with my feelings, just dealing with life on life's terms has been kind of hard when it was so easy to just uh, check out with you know alcohol so
2: yeah on the other hand what has been um, an unexpected perk or you know some gifts of sobriety that you're like man I can't believe I was missing out on this can you think of anything specific
1: my perception um I know we talk about that a lot on this um podcast but like man, the whole, like, opportunity rather than a sacrifice, like, that has been such a big gift. Like, I'm so much more positive at work, at, like, you know, around my family, and, like, I don't isolate. Well, that would be a lie. Sometimes my default is still to just, like, isolate. (laughs) But for the most part, I I have such a big, like, outlook on – my life and like all the different opportunity. Whereas before I was looking at it such a like, man, I have to let go of all these people and, and uh, situations. And I was looking at like sobriety as such a big sacrifice when it's not like it's, it's been such a big window of opportunity. In fact, it's, it's probably been my biggest window of opportunity.
2: Love that. Because honestly, that is one of the things that If you're new in sobriety or if you're still kind of in that little denial window, you hear that phrase and you're like, oh, screw that. You guys like, no, (laughs) like it's not an opportunity. You know, you have to be ready and it clicks. And once it clicks, you truly believe it. And it's just such an inner process. So I'm just really happy that that mindset, mindset shift has happened for you, because I mean, all of our journeys are different, but sometimes those chapters of feeling like it isn't fun and feeling like you're missing out when you're in those chapters, it's hard. Like when you're, someone was saying the other day, you know, when you're not having fun drinking and then you're also not having fun, not drinking, you're just kind of in this weird limbo where like both situations suck because you still can't feel and transition into that opportunity mindset that just comes to us at all at a at a different time. And no one can really force that into your subconscious. So I'm just really glad to hear that, Aaron. And, you know, it's just it's really refreshing. I know you're young. And I'm just really, really happy that you have found all of the possibilities and have felt the potential of who you are and who you can be without drinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely so many gifts that have been given in sobriety and credit to Recovery Elevator and Paul because I remember the moment at like being at the gym and like hearing that and like the opportunity rather than the sacrifice that was literally happened like while I was listening to the podcast. And yeah, I, I too was stuck in that like, how am I gonna get sober? And I'm never gonna get sober. So like I was in this between of like, you know, missing out. I'm too young. I'm, you know, I'm going to lose all these friends. And what about how I look? You know, it's just like so, so ridiculous. And uh, it's been such a relief, like letting that go as I've, 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 as I've been on this path.
2: So good to hear Aaron. And we have reached the rapid fire round. So I'm going to hit you up with some questions. And if you can answer them in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready?
1: Yes. Let's do it.
2: Okay. What would you say to your younger self?
1: Uh, I love you. You are incredible. You are incredibly courageous.
2: What is your favorite ice cream flavor?
1: Oh man, I love fruit in my ice cream. And my favorite ice cream is strawberry ice cream.
2: What is a light bulb moment that you've had during this journey?
1: The light bulb moment was the shift in my perception um, during this process, looking at my sobriety as an opportunity and not a sacrifice.
2: Yes. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze?
1: Um, It's time we face it. You know, there's no way around it. There's no way over this. Um, We can do this. And uh, we just the only way is through.
2: I love that. The only way out is through. And before we depart, Aaron, can you give listeners your own? You may have to say adios to booze if line.
1: Oh man. Yeah. I was thinking about this one. So you may need to say adios to booze if you black out early sometime in the morning and uh, you wake up around midnight later on that day. And your brother is telling you that you met the head of security at a mall you don't even remember being at and being banned from the mall.
2: Aaron, I'm so, so grateful that you don't have to deal with that anymore and that you're sober. Thank you for joining us on the show. I appreciate you so much and we'll be in touch.
1: Yeah, much love, sister. Thank you so much for having me on.
2: Much love back. Bye. Happy Friday. You too. Bye. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to remind you today that baby steps and small progress is still progress. We tend to assess and evaluate ourselves regularly. And I always say that we are too hard on ourselves. What's something small that you've recently done for yourself that is moving you in the right direction. I hope that you're taking inventory of all of those smaller things as well because they do add up and you are doing this. We are doing this. This whole idea of baby steps adding up always reminds me of the compound effect. I think the author is Darren Hardy. And even though it may not feel like it or seem like it, all of these little, little, little decisions do add up in a way that you'll be able to look back and be proud of every one of those little micro decisions. So keep going. Don't give up and make it a great week. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We need to take the stairs back up. I love you guys.
3: story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart, Follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? My response is always the same. Burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decision familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. And it's these feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the cycle. If you can recognize this, you will be empowered to change. You're thinking.